My name is Barry Siragusa, and this is the Hunting Hound Podcast presented by W Hunting Supply. Join us as we go deep discussing hounds and everything hound related with the men and women from around the globe who've dedicated their lives to hunting with hounds. We ask them about the game they pursue, the breeds they run, and they get their insight into what it means to be a modern-day houndsman. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Leave us a comment and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. All right. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Yeah, it's um, it's midday here. What time is it there? It's uh, 7 p.m. So Okay, because you're in... What, what threw me when I was setting this podcast up is I've done a couple um, with people in, uh, in New Zealand and I, I, I've got the American sense of uh, geography here where I figured that you were going to be at pretty much the same time zone. And the reality is that you're not even close to the same, same time zone. No, we've got, a, we've got a couple of different time zones within Australia. So yeah. it's, uh, it's probably a larger country than, than most people imagine. I think it probably is. Yeah, I, I looked it up because I, I mentioned it to my wife who spent a bunch of time in Australia. And um, she was like, oh, yeah, there's there's like three or four different time zones there. I was like, oh, OK. I think Australia is bigger than I think. Yeah, it's massive. I think the, the state that I'm in from memory is uh, the combined size of, I think they say, Texas and Alaska. So it's, okay. <laughs> it's a fairly decent chunk of land. That is a decent chunk of land. Where are you? Where are you actually located? Uh, right this minute, I'm on a mine site uh, in a place called the Fraser Ranges, which is um, near Norseman, which is 800 kilometres from Perth, okay. um, which is probably like I would assume six, 650 miles or something along those lines. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and Perth City is our capital city in Western Australia, yeah, and that's the most remote capital city in the world. So. Okay. We're in the middle wow. of nowhere. <laughs> cool. Wow. That's crazy. So you, but that's where you live. So you travel, you travel 600 plus miles to work. Yeah. So I live, I live in the city. I live in Perth while well, in the outskirts. So it's yeah. so halfway between sort of suburbia and, and rural. So, um, but just on the suburban side. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so we travel, we travel 800, 800 odd Ks uh, to get to work. So, so you're there all week, I should think. Yeah, I'll spend a week here and then a week at home. Um, okay. There's a lot of a lot of this mining mining sort of work in Western Australia. A lot of FIFO, like fly in, fly out yep. work. Um, I've done this for 20, 20 something years, um, working in resourcing, so on onshore and offshore. Yeah, okay. that's where the money is, and you know, if you if you're lucky enough and you work hard enough and you can get yourself an even time roster, the uh, the rest of your time's yours. So it's yeah. pretty good. Excellent. Well, what do you, um, I wanted to talk to you about what you do with the rest of your time. You've got the one, I heard a podcast that you did maybe a year ago, a little over a year ago, maybe. Okay. Um, with, uh, with Seth. Seth Paul. Yeah, that's right. Where you talked a little bit about your dogs and I know he's really into the, the sight hounds and things like that. And I want to talk to you about that too. Uh, but um, what got us talking is your, you have a, you have a predator call company. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So I've got a, a, a small business that, that I own and run. Um, it's called Down Under Predator Call. So we're in the land down under. Yeah. Um, and basically sort of to get started there, um, 
all of the predator calls that are available to the rest of the world are available to us. I know we're in the middle of nowhere, but uh, mm. we've got the internet and eBay. Yeah. Uh, but what I was finding was, um, so we're hunting foxes and cats uh, with our with our dogs. Um, yeah, cats like and bob, bobcats and things. Or are you talking like domestic, uh, like wild wild domestic cats? Yeah. So feral domestic cats. Really? Um, that might hit a nerve with some with some listeners, I suppose. <laughs> um, come, come to think of it. Uh, but look, they're they're a scourge here, mate. They they are causing nothing but problems. They're yeah. about as far from domestic as as you'd get. Um, yep. They're truly wild cats, um, yep. and none of the none of the fauna here is really, you know, set out to protect themselves from those cats. So we have we have thousands of, of small birds and marsupials and lizards and and whatnot that um, those cats just just make a meal out of. So gotcha. um, they're uh, a real problem. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, they're I think they're a problem really everywhere. I think it was. Um you know, the, the number of birds of songbirds killed in the United States by people's pets. I mean, not feral cats, people's pets is, is in the billions. Yeah. So, you know, I yeah. can imagine a, a, you know, a place like Australia where maybe the, the climate is conducive to them uh, being able to live wildly fairly comfortably that, that, that that's going to become a really big problem really quickly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it already is. They, they, they're just apex predators as, as far as this country's concerned. They're, um, there's nothing to stop them. Right. Right. Wow. That's, in, that's intense. So sorry to interrupt, but yeah, let's, uh, no, all good, the, the predator calls foxes and cats mainly. Yeah. So what we were finding was, um, and, and it's exceptionally frustrating. So we want to, we want to get those foxes and cats in close, um, in order for the, for the dogs to be able to, um, to course them and catch them. Um, and what we'd find is we'd be out of a night time normally with a, with a spotlight mm-hmm. and you'd see a fox off at a distance of, you know, several hundred metres and it'd be coming in. And then it'd get to a certain point where it's starting to feel uncomfortable and it'd circle around downwind of you, it would smell you and it would leave. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, and this would happen time and time again. It was par for the course. Um, and so, you know, I was talking with a, a couple of friends of mine who are engineers um, one of them is a control systems engineer who's exceptionally smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to him about my problems and I said, what I really want to do if I could is, um, is I'd like to modify uh, some mouth calls to make them sound not like a, I guess, not like an injured animal or a distressed animal, mm-hmm. but like a severely injured, imminently going to die, lungs collapsing, chest crushed in um, animal. So, Right. Uh, my way of thinking was this: was that if there's an injured, if there's a small injured animal um, that these cats and foxes can hear, uh, mm-hmm. they're going to close that gap and get close. Um, but when their scent starts to go towards that animal, um, that animal has a chance to go into a hollow or, or something like that if it if it feels the pressure on it. Yeah. Um, also, it would be more advantageous for that fox or cat um, to swing around downwind, and it can use its ears. Um, as well as its nose in order to track that animal down before it gets a chance for that final final escape sure um, and then also something something may be causing that causing that damage to that animal so okay. again it'll be advantageous for them to get downwind and smell and make sure there's not a bigger badder predator there so sure um, so the thought was if if that animal is imminently going to die 
then yeah. it's kind of like the ice cream truck going past when when your kids are at home. You know, they hear the noise. They're like, all right, I've got to go right now. If I'm going to get it now, I've got to go. Right. Um, otherwise, they've just got to sniff it out with their nose. So, um, so we probably trialed maybe maybe three, 300, 400 different variations of a, a mouth call, a tenderfield mouth call, mm-hmm. um, and recorded them all with an airborne ultrasonic monitor. Okay. Um, and then basically stole some videos off David Attenborough, um, found the ones where you had really severely messed up rodents and rabbits, and yep. then visually matched those calls, found the ones that were, that were the closest likeness yep. and, and met all the points, and then trialled them. And um, I've sent you some of the videos, man. This, yeah, this they're flying to your feet. Yeah, they're, it, they're amazing. Uh, that's, what, that's what made me want to get you on the podcast was the, uh, you know, they've, they've got they've got calls over here and you know, I've, I've tried a couple of them there, you know, they, they, they work, you know, you, you, you bring animals in, but it's like you said, they would, you know, you would get a Fox and it would come in and you might get a young, dumb one, but the bigger ones are going to kind of, you know, shake you down a little bit to see what, what are we looking at here? And, you know, but yeah, so we're, were just we're, like we're fine. head down sprinting towards you. I mean, it was, it was, it was remarkable. The difference watching your videos versus watching some of these other hunting videos over here of of guys with their calls it is a totally different reaction from the foxes and the cats yeah i mean i i mean i'm i'm sending you the top the top videos these things aren't perfect you know nature does what nature does and but yeah there's definitely a, a, a a marked increase in the amount we're catching and you know, you're seeing foxes come in with bullet holes in their ears. You're seeing the old dog foxes that are that are quite wise, and you know these things must be eight, nine years old, right at the end of their life. All their teeth yeah. rotted out of their head, and yeah, you know it. it's not their first rodeo, and and they're coming into it consistently. So nice. Um, yeah, it's an it's an achievement. Like I didn't do it alone, of course. Like a lot of people helped me along the way. Yeah. Um, luckily for me, it is my business, and I'm I'm doing all right out of it. But uh, but yeah, look, it's it's you know guys with a similar passion have been involved and helped and decent feedback um excellent you know a close friend of mine he he suggested uh, these retaining ridges uh, that we can put on them so that you know what we do with our spotlight we've got a, a dog a dog lead in one hand to slip the dog mm-hmm. um and a spotlight in the other um, on a dimmer switch and then the and then the um call in your mouth and there's not dissimilar for you know a guy with a shotgun um, sitting with his back to a tree in the middle of the day, uh, he doesn't want to be moving around. He doesn't want his hand up near his mouth, and then have to have to move that to the shotgun. So, yeah, um, yeah, really handy. They work well. That's really interesting because what you know what struck me is that you know in in um, the hunting that I do for fox is with the hounds, but it it immediately struck me when I sort of considered how you're running your dogs in compare like in tandem with this call the 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 possibilities of what i could use a call like that in my situation being on the total you know the other side of the world the, the possibilities seemed endless to me suddenly you know suddenly it gave me it gave, it gave me pause to think about you know i don't want a terrier to put it that way like i don't want a den dog i don't want an earth dog yep. i don't i i have enough i enjoy my hounds i don't like terriers particularly but when the dogs go down, you know, when the fox goes down, that's the end of our hunt. But now it, 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 uh, the, it offers the possibility of, well, you know, I can, I can back off a hundred meters 
box the dog and then do some calls to see if I can coax that fox out, take the pressure off and coax that fox out, which struck me as a possibility for, and I've talked to you about that possibility, um, mm. as well as a really, really effective way to start young dogs, you know, rather than that's, that's what sort of, yeah. 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 So you, you, I guess if there's snow on the ground and you can see the tracks and you, you're comfortable what you're tracking, that's one thing, but you know, um, the, the wild or the, the bush or whatever you want to call it, uh, it's not a sterile environment. You can't, you can't guarantee that your, that your young hound has got its nose on the right track. So how do you know whether to pull it up or, or whether to let it keep going? Right. So yeah, especially for the young dogs, if you can call a fox in until you can see it and then shut up and just let it go about its business and, and turn off, at least, you know, hand on heart that you're putting that dog on a fresh hot track Absolutely. you know putting it on something that's eight or ten hours old the, the dog's got a good chance to see a fox and get excited um, right. maybe that's a bit more of a payoff for, for, for that pup um absolutely. that's that's where my head's at anyway so yeah absolutely you know because i know a lot of guys here will start pups off of you know bait piles or something like that which is effective but especially in those early stages you know, you can get a situation where a pup will run and then be like, you know, that pile of bread smelled pretty good. I might go back there and check that out again. You know, whereas <laughs> this, you don't have that, you don't have that thing kind of drawing them back, distracting them in the, in the same way. So it's, it's something that I'm really interested in trying with, um, with this plot pup that I've got as a way of getting him rolling. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. One, one thing I see a lot of um, here in Australia, sort of digressing a bit, is, um, is people that are training puppies, um, especially the guys that are training them to hunt pigs. Um, they sort of, they sort of do, do their own version of tracking that pig themselves and get themselves excited over what the, the dog's behaviour is. They don't know what the dog's smelling. So they'll go, they'll go out to where the pigs have been ploughing up the earth and they're confident that they're pigs because it, it couldn't possibly be anything else. That's sure. clearly they're pigs. Right. Um, the dogs are running. Yeah. And they're, they're destructive, those things. They're crazy. The, um, the dogs are running around and they're excited and they're going to get rewarded for that by the handler. And the handler's, yeah, good for you. Go do yeah. your thing. But you don't know what that dog's smelling. It could be smelling kangaroos. It could be smelling wombats. It could be smelling other dogs. It could be doing whatever it's – you don't know. So right. um, – Again, it's not a sterile environment. You're not actually truly training it to track. You don't know what you're training it to do. So, um, and what what I've noticed uh, at least several times with people that I know is that they'll go to these spots. The dog will get excited. It'll have these smells. It knows it's going to get released from the ute. It knows it's going to have a good time. And then they bump some pigs, and then and then they, there's that positive reinforcement there that yes, I jumped out. Yes, I bumped into a pig. I got a chase. I got the bite. It's fantastic. Right. And those dogs start to mark on scent, but the the precursor to that is torn up earth. So right. you hear people say, oh, my dog can find off the ground, and other people say, oh, my dog can find off a vehicle. Um, the dog should be smelling a hot scent of a pig and finding a pig, but they're right. not. They're finding the earth. They're jumping out, and by chance, they're bumping into pigs. So the handler thinks, great, I'm training my dog to hunt pigs. You're not. You're right. training your dogs to jump where there's where pigs have congregated in the past. Right, right, right. And right. so you might catch a pig every tenth jump, whereas if you train your dog to to track a hot scent of a pig, 
you should be catching at least getting onto a pig unless you get busted off. You should be catching one every jump. There should be no right. reason that that dog should jump unless it smells a pig. Right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So with the, the distress call or the I'm about to I'm about to call it a call it a night call that that, that you're of the of the animals. What what are the animals you're trying to replicate? Is it like small rodents and 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 rabbits mainly or yeah so so anything from a rabbit down um will be enticing to a fox um cats will take rabbits as well um but calling a cat is a lot a lot more difficult than calling a fox they're they're a lot more cautious so um you'll catch a cat in a a cage trap Mm -hmm. you almost never catch a fox in a cage trap so you will catch them from time to time but not as not as readily as a cat Mm -hmm. um but the, the opposite's true when you're calling. So you'll call a fox. You could call a fox just sucking on the back of your hand if there's one close enough. Right. Um, uh, and, and that's actually quite an effective way to do it, probably, probably even more so than a lot of these commercial callers that are out there. Um, uh, but, yeah, you, maybe something smaller than a rabbit is more enticing to a cat. So we, we also make one um, that's a mouth caller specifically for cats. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not marketing it yet. I'm just waiting for a few more field trials. So far, they're going really good. I don't know if you've been on my page in the last couple of weeks, but yeah, um, for sure, for whole sure. bunch, whole bunch of cats coming back in. Um, and basically, they those ones replicate um, an injured rodent around the size of a rat. Um, okay. So we did we did um, like woodchucks, rats, um, nutria, things like that um, mm. that were all injured all over the world and matched and matched all of their. Um, all of the audio to those and and found one that's relatively um across the board right and it's working really well so that's really um, cool that's bringing the cats in yeah cats are difficult though and this is the issue that that i face and no offense to anyone listening in that happens to hunt in australia but um in order to use them you have to hunt a specific way and be more of a i guess a true hunter um rather than someone that's just going to go out make a noise, see something 300, 400 metres away and shoot it. Um, if you want to call a cat in, um, you have to get there. You have to be silent, no slamming your car doors. You know, you get away from your vehicle. Don't shine a spotlight around. Don't make don't make stomping noises through the bush. It is a bit of stealth. Right. Um, you've got to put yourself in a position close enough to a cat that it's going to hear you um, and then call it in. So, and those things, are, they're... Uh, yeah extremely cautious and i think um <clears throat> i think the reason that they can afford to be cautious uh is because they're such phenomenally good hunters mm. that they're not as hungry as everything else that's out there right right yeah i mean so i've never yeah. i've never seen a, a yeah i've never seen a cat with an empty belly never once is that right wow yeah wow yep. is like with foxes and things you know i i assume there's is, is there any kind of a market for fur or anything like that over there like is it mainly predator predator maintenance or, or is there actually a market for for uh, no no market for not fur a resource in any whatsoever way? no nope okay no the, the the fur market's been well and truly destroyed by the um by the anti-hunting brigade and hmm. um there's just it, it, no nah, there's none here we uh in the eastern states, in some states, I'm not, not entirely sure which ones, um, New South Wales, uh, Victoria, places like that, 
Um, there's a bounty on them because of the damage that they do to the environment. So um, yeah. I think at the moment it's $10, $10 a scalp. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, Western Australia, where I am, there's no bounty. So okay. if anyone's out there killing them, that's it's uh, you know they're trying to either do the right thing by the environment or by the farmers, mm-hmm. or potentially they just like hunting and and uh, they're a target animal that they're allowed to hunt. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that makes sense. You know, because it's it's the same here in 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 Norway. There's actually a bounty on on foxes to get to hunt them, and it's it's not a bad bounty either. I'm trying to remember what it is. It's it's like fifty dollars or something like that. It's it's really not that bad. Oh, well. Um, so are they, are they non-native in Norway? Um, that is actually a really good question. I believe that they are native to a degree, whether they were introduced here or whether they just, as the climate warmed, they moved, they moved up here sort of naturally. I'm on, I'm uncertain about, I, I do know that there were, there's never been as many of them as there are now. Okay. And they started to prey, uh, red foxes will actually prey on the, um, the Arctic fox, the little gray foxes here. Okay. Yep. Um, which is becoming, which is becoming a little bit of a problem. They're actually pushing those gray foxes. They're, they're one of the major reasons um, that are one of the major factors pushing the gray foxes towards extinction. Yeah. Right. So I, my guess would be that originally they got to the continent via somebody who wanted to hunt them and then spread sort of naturally yep. into Norway from there. But that, that would, that would be a guess of mine. I actually have not looked enough into the history of the red Fox in Norway, okay. but it's a good, it's a good question. Yeah. Because now there's a ton of them. I mean, now, you know, usually when I put out a bait, which I don't do often, but usually when I do, it takes, you know, about a week for the foxes to kind of, you know, I might get one that happens to pass by, but it takes about a week for them to kind of figure it out, start going, there with any kind of regularity um but there's so many of them now i put out sure. a bait i put out a bait in a totally different spot a spot that i'd never ever put bait before so it wasn't like they were going past there to sort of see if maybe i'd done it and uh had seven of them on there in the well, first night well just i mean they're they're everywhere here it's un it's unbelievable and it's not that way in all of norway but in the area that i am it's um it's what got me into hounds in the first place was the, the number of foxes, um, in, in the area. You know, I grew up in, in the state of Maine, uh, in, in the U S and, and during my youth, you know, childhood youth, they were going, we had a rabies epidemic that was really raging. So I got chased off of the, you know, off of the playground a couple of times by rabid foxes. You know, they closed down the playgrounds and got, you know, I remember I was practicing tennis once and we had to run into the courts and lock the doors because there was a rabid fox running around outside, you know, things like that. So, you oh, know, wow. fo- too many foxes makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> like we don't have rabies over here in Norway, but it's still, it's like when I start seeing foxes rolling around through the yard middle of the day, it's like those yeah. are, it starts throwing red flags for me, even if I know that there's no rabies here. Yeah, we don't we don't have rabies here in Australia either, so we're we're lucky in that regard. That is great. Um, plenty yeah. of feral pest animals, but but yeah, we're luckily being an, an island continent, we're uh, we're relatively disease free in a in a lot of aspects that That's you know excellent. throughout Europe they don't they don't have the same luxury. So right, um, actually, I remember being over in uh, there's a, a barley 
Bali, just it's an island out of Indonesia. Um, it's yep. not far from Australia, so it's a pretty popular holiday destination for us. And yep. um, I went over there once and got attacked by a monkey. Uh, the thing was trying to steal my kids' food and I shoot oh. it off because go away. Right. And, uh, yeah, got attacked by it. All its little monkey friends came out of the forest and it's a bit of a standoff for a while. It bit me. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then, yeah, they told me later that day, they're like, hey, you better go get a rabies shot because um, if you wow. don't and you, as soon as you show signs of it, that's that's it. Your cactus, you can't return from it. So No, you, it's, it's, yeah. it's a bad deal, man. It's a bad deal. They just, two, two years ago, they had the first documented case ever of somebody living. Wow. So it's bad news then. It's bad news. It was this young, youngish girl. I think she was 12 or 13 years old. And she got it like full blown, like no, no question, full blown rabies and managed to manage to pull through. And it was the only, it's the only case ever where that has been, where that's, where, where, where that has happened. Yeah. But yeah. yeah it's funny. Like, I think... That's hardcore, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they are, uh, they'll, they'll grip you with their back feet as, as hardcore as they do with the front and oh. their canines are bigger than my dog. So I think I uh, made a silly decision, but I stayed the course anyway because um, I'm getting attacked by an animal and not snotting it. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow, that's intense, man. Yeah, um, he, here in Australia, is you know, as far as all the the, you know, I see a lot of a lot of stuff on social media about how deadly everything is here, um, but uh, no, I don't. It's it's not you know like we yeah okay you got crocodiles that'll that'll kill you but that's that's a given right. um, and then a lot of things in the ocean are pretty scary if, if you touch them but they're yeah. not going to attack you right. um, but yeah as far as all this you know the snakes and spiders and anything venomous um, yeah deaths are really rare I think you you're in more you're in more trouble being around cattle and horses than you yeah, are for um, sure, man. with with the snakes and for sure especially if you're uh, if, you know, if you took out all all the snake bites uh, where people were messing with the snake when they probably shouldn't have been, right. um, then you then you're good. So right, you're, I you're catch looking- it every summer. I catch them here on site. Uh, we, you know, there's probably about maybe a couple of dozen of us that are, are trained as snake handlers, mm-hmm. um, and we don't have any vipers here. So if you're just wearing your normal your normal work pants or jeans and boots, uh, they can't bite through that. They've got right. they've got really small teeth. Sure. Um, okay. And even if you do get bitten, um, you treat it right. You're not. You're not going to die. Right. So right. Right. It's not going to be nice, but you're not going to die. Right. Wow, that's really interesting. Because yeah, you know, it's it, it's it's one of those things where Australia has this almost mythical status in the minds of at least. It, I, I won't speak for all Americans. At least for me, you know, where it was like that's yeah. where that's where the baddest of the bad the ugliest of the uglies that's you know that's it's this awesome sort of huge massive place that is just ready to kill you doesn't seem having gotten to know over the years gotten to know some australians and and talk to all you know i'm getting the i'm getting the vibe that maybe my view of australia may have been skewed by bad nature documentaries from when i was a kid you know yep yeah, my view of the world was a little skewed. Growing up, I thought uh, quicksand was going to be a pretty big problem in my life, you know, <laughs> watching the cartoons. But 
right? It's just not. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, you you kind of um, grow up thinking that road runners are going to be a bigger problem than they actually end up being. And uh, yeah. So, it, but it's, it's interesting though, talking to, you know, talking to you and talk, talking to people from other parts of the world where um, for the very most part, I've found that there may be small aspects of truth to some of the stereotypes, but for the yep. very most part, it's, it's much more nuanced than I think people realize that it is, you know, cause um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but do you have like with your dogs, how do you, you know, they're, they're I would assume that they're not going to be as aware of, of, of snakes and you know, the potential dangers that they could bump into out in the, out in the bush, you know, what, do you have to break them off of snakes? How do, how do you do, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I guess snakes are exceptionally dangerous for dogs. And the reason, the reason being, um, especially on the farms where the dogs are chained mm. and they're on the ground, there's nothing in their, in their chain spot. Um, a snake comes in, they're going to go investigate it. Yeah. Uh, the snake defends itself, tags the dog, and, uh, and then the dog dies. So, yeah. you know, your child gets tagged or you get tagged, you know about it straight away, you put some compression on it, elevate it, calm the person down, get them off to a doctor, whack some anti-venom in them, um, and you're pretty much good. You don't get that luxury with a dog. He's not going to complain. It's just going to sit there and lick its paw and um, and slowly pass away as its, as its right. blood hemorrhages out inside it. So sure. um, most people here don't snake-proof their dogs because um, they don't know how. Okay. Well, I'm lucky enough that uh, that my brother's one of the one of the leading um, dog trainers in the country, if if not if not internationally. Um, he's exceptionally good. He's dedicated his life to to working dogs, both military, okay. police, and um, hunting, and and other types of dogs as well with SES, so search and rescue dogs and things like yeah. that. Yeah, 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 cool. Um, he he also hunts so. Um, I know you just said you don't like terriers, but if we're if we're cleaning out um, foxes um, in certain parts of of Western Australia, mm. um, the only way to get them out of the dens and the log piles is with terriers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the problem the problem in um, in certain regions, especially in the southwest where he was for several years, um, are a type of snake we have called a tiger snake. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, maybe a herpetologist will get on after this and, and shoot me down. I could be wrong, but it's my belief that tiger snakes don't um, hibernate. Um, okay. They sort of they sort of go in this semi semi zone between between hibernating and not hibernating. So as soon as you get a warm day, they're up and about. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the rest of the snakes will stay hibernating until they get a consistent amount of um, of warmer days, and then they and then they're up for the season. Okay, um, and so. The tiger snakes will go. One of the one of the best places for them is in the mouth is in the mouth of a fox den. So, um, fast forward to summer, if it's if it's too hot, they can't regulate their their temperature, same as any other snake. So if it's sure. too hot, they're going to cook to death. Yeah. If it's too cold, they're going to get lethargic and not move. Right. Um, so they go down the fox dens and they find that happy zone between where it's really cool right down inside the den and where it's really hot out on the baking sand. Sure. And they and they sort of hang out there. Um, right, they're nailing those terriers on the way in. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the guys the guys are uh, losing terriers hand over fist. Um, really? Wow. And 
Yeah, and so and so um, Seth put together my brother's name Seth. So he he put together a, a program um, in order to snake proof his terriers, and then he's moved that on to to pet dogs and things like that. So just before That's spring really every year, he runs he runs a course. Yeah, yeah, and so the 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 broken down version of what he does is he um, he creates a scent wall, um, which is basically uh, imagine a really long wall out of out of plywood. Mm-hmm. Um, the bunch of holes out of it yeah um and then in those holes uh, is a bit of pvc pipe so the dog runs down the wall side it pokes its nose in um and then every now and again there's a treat so they teach the dogs fairly fairly easily um to go and pop their nose in all these holes and and then they'll find treats yeah um and then what they do is they'll have a live snake um venomous and non-venomous snakes and they'll mm-hmm. have those in another pvc tube with, with holes in it and they'll pop those inside um, randomly inside these holes. Mm-hmm. And as the dog goes by, pokes its nose in a hole that, that has this foreign smell in it. And that foreign smell is one of these snakes. Sure. And, um, and they'll use an electric collar um, sure. on, a, on a lower stimulus to give it an unpleasant feeling mm-hmm. um, as it's investigating it. So um, with all dogs, while the dog's making its, it's having its cognitive reasoning going on and it's making its mind up whether it likes something or doesn't like it, if you can give it a correction during that period of time, mm-hmm. that's way more effective than trying to break it off something later. So, sure. you know, for instance, if you, if you have a hunting dog that you're raising as a young pup and then you get the Kelpies out to stir up the sheep and have a few guys hooping and hollering in there um, and this hunting dog shows some interest in the sheep, if you give it a correction while it's trying to decide whether or not sheep are on the menu, mm. that'll all, that just that one that one correction alone can almost knock a dog off for for its life. I think the the current dog I'm running, I think he had two corrections on sheep in his life. Yep, he's six. He'll run, he'll run through a mob of sheep and, and pick a rabbit or a fox out of them and not even look twice at them. So that's um, if you yeah. get them at the right time, um, you can train that dog. So so back to the scent wall. Once these things over, over time have, have um, smelt a couple of snakes and, and been corrected, um, they certainly don't like them, you then introduce them to a live snake out in the field. Um, you do that on a long line so that the dog can't possibly um, reach the snake, so that, that handler would want to be switched on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, you'll crank, you'll crank that collar up to give, to give that dog a decent boot. Yep. Um, it'll see a snake moving. It'll get up to have a sniff of it. It'll get the scent of the snake, and you'll see its body language change. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, when the when the snake moves, moves, you know, you might call it aggressive or defensive, whatever you want to call it. The, the sure. snake puffs up to to protect itself. Um, the dog will get the dog will get zapped in, um, yeah. and then that'll just lock it in. It just won't it won't want anything to do with snakes. Right, right. So wow, it seems really... a bit harsh. It potentially seems harsh for for, for those that aren't. Yeah, you know, it's the, the, there's this there's this balance when it when you're dealing with dogs and anybody who has dogs uh, or more than one dog, I should say, uh, is going to know this. I I believe most uh, they at least should know this that you know there's a, there's a balance between you know setting a dog up for failure and taking the steps to avoid a lethal situation later on. Yeah. You know, I don't want. I don't want, you know, like one thing I won't tolerate in my kennel is I won't tolerate fighters. Yeah. You know, but I will, if I see two young males kind of trying to be beefy with each other, 
I'll let those two males loose together. And either they'll sort of posture a little bit and then figure out, oh, okay, well, this is not that big of a deal and walk away and problem solved, or they're going to get into it. Mm -hmm. And when they get into it, I, you know, I'm not going to beat them, but I'm going to make it really unpleasant for them. I'm going to take them down. I'm going to bite their ears. I'm going to make, I'm going to make sure that they understand that this is one area where they are not allowed, they're, they're not allowed to bite each other and they're not allowed to bite people it's the two areas where i will come down very very hard on a dog because the yeah. consequences i've seen dogs killed virtually in, in, instantaneously in a dog fight yeah. yeah and it happens so fast the consequences are so severe that i would rather set them up for failure that one time and convince them that this is not something i ever want to do again than have them go into it thinking that this is a great you know Oh, this is not a big, a big deal, and getting themselves killed. Yeah, yeah. Look, you, you know, uh, animal abuse in my mind. Um, there's there's very different variations of it. So if you're if you're beating a dog, that is abuse, hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you're correcting a dog within within a reasonable reasonable band, mm. that's perfectly fine. So yeah. if you're withholding, if you withhold food from a dog mm. in order to train it. Mm. That's fine. You're not starving the dog. You just right. you just want to switch on during that training period. Sure. If you starve a dog, you shouldn't own a dog. You right. know, there's there's animal welfare there. So, you know, you withhold you withhold water. Um, that's that's something that that dog needs. Then right. yeah, you shouldn't own a dog. Absolutely. And if you withhold discipline, that's a problem too because because the negative effect um, of a dog not being disciplined. Uh, way outweighs any any amount of reasonable discipline any reasonably minded human being would give to a dog. So mm-hmm. uh, I know there's a lot of people with pet dogs that live in suburbia that you know want to keep them on the couch and pat them and, and, and treat them like you know they're their own kids or whatever and right. and fine. Um, but these aren't these aren't people that are going to take their dogs out and have their dogs experience real world problems like our dogs are going to experience. So right, absolutely. Um, no, you, yeah, you just you have to control those dogs. You have to be comfortable with what they're doing. And like, you know, from from my perspective and and the way that I hunt, I hunt on people's private property. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also their business. You know, mm-hmm. it's their home and it's their business. So if I'm in their farm and I'm hunting, you know, those those sheep and those cows and those goats and those pigs and uh, you know chickens around the farmhouse and pet cats and things like that. Um, yeah, that that dog needs to do the right thing the entire time it's there. So, yeah, you know, if I'm going to stay up at the farmhouse with the farmer, I need to be comfortable that my dog's not going to kill kill his peacock or his guinea fowl or whatever, um, or his pet cat for that matter. Right. Um, but then when we go out hunting in the paddocks and we see a cat, he better go and dust it up because that's his job. That's really interesting. How do you how do you get them to see the the difference between a, like a domestic somebody's pet and and a wild or a feral cat. Okay, so I don't I don't know that you necessarily can, um, okay. but what you can certainly do is is have is have uh, a different uh, a different body language or a different um, environment. So so around a farmhouse, if I backtrack just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. the the way that we hunt or the way that I hunt and and you know my close friends is we hunt out of the back of our vehicles the majority of the time. We do a bit on foot here and there when it's one-on-one with you and your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but but if we're hunting with multiple dogs or the you know majority of the hunting we're doing we're doing it from a vehicle okay um and in that vehicle in the back of the vehicle we'll have a cage and in the and the cage will um well obviously the cage will hold hold the dog um but a cage is a location for a dog and dogs are exceptionally location sensitive uh, when it, when it comes to training a dog mm-hmm. um so if they're in that vehicle and they're in that cage there's there's two modes in which that dog will come out of the cage and after this actually I'll flick you a few videos and I'll, I'll show you what I mean yeah yeah um but basically the the one the, the one way that they can come out of that cage is exceptionally calm they can't they can't show you any sort of uh, excitement or bouncing around or anything like that or they're going to be chastised and that's right from a pup mm-hmm. so if I'm standing at the cage and I open that cage door I open it slowly mm-hmm. um. And the dog's basically face to face with me. If, if the dog comes to come out with any sort of excitement, the door closes fast towards its face. Yep. It might occasionally nick its nose or something. It's not going to injure the dog, but it's just no, no. going to give it a bad taste. Sure. Um, and the dog doesn't have a choice. It comes out calm, jumps out, has a sniff around, does its doggy goodness. Yep. Um, the other way to come out of that cage, you, you would have seen the greyhound tracks. Mm-hmm. The rabbit mm-hmm. comes around or the, you know, the lure comes around. And uh, those doors open, and those greyhounds come flying out of that, out of that, those boxes, right? Mm. And if they're never sitting in there sniffing themselves or looking out the back door or anything like that. You know, right. if they if they're trained to the trained to the lure, the handlers of those dogs have trained them well. They come flying out. So that's the other way the dogs come out. So if that if that cage door automatically opens, um, and we open that, basically the cage doors on springs, we pull a wire door opens yeah um we've then conditioned those dogs right right from a young age um to come out in a in a state of drive because mm-hmm. they're working and there's something to hit so okay yeah, we'll yeah. start with um with rags rags and flirt poles and things like that um we'll we'll condition them to food as well and then as they progress and they reach their milestones in their lives, um, we'll then step it up to to actually hunting game. So, right. Um, there's a lot of transition periods in a, in a dog's life as it learns, um, yep. and one of them is learning to go from from um, you know a rag or a flirt pole onto an animal. Right. Um, so you need to set it up for the, at least for the first sort of fifteen or twenty runs um, that you're guaranteed that that dog's going to see the animal. It doesn't mean right. it has to catch it. It just has to see it and run, and then right. and it locks it into its brain. That, yep, when that cage door opens, um, they believe that whatever you're pointing it at um, is there. And you know, if we've done some spotlight association training with that dog for food, and then for, then for a rag, and then for a, a lure, and then for a, you know, then it comes out and sees an animal. Yeah, um, it's also very confident that what's in that spotlight, it's allowed to hit. Um, okay. and so right, 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 right. that's yeah. just another tool, um, in, in your toolbox to, to allow that dog to fully express its drive. So dogs that are, dogs that are told one day they can, another day they can't, um, you know, like it can hunt, it can hunt a pig, but it can't hunt a piglet and the, and the handler's pretty rough on it for, for stepping outside of, of, you know, whatever their guidelines are, mm. that dog's going to be confused and it's not going to, no matter what's in it. Um, it's not going to express its drive fully. Right. Whereas our dogs, everything's crystal clear to them. They are 100% sure, yes, they can. And then if we're standing there when we open the cage, um, often they don't even jump out. You open the door and they'll just look at you because they want to go hunting. Like, what's sure. the point? We're just going to sniff flowers. 
Great. We'll sure. wait for you. We'll wait for you to close the door and we'll be on our way. So, right, right. Sure. So yeah. Wow. Um there's yeah. That's a, that's that's basically how, how we run our dogs here. Yep. Um and it takes all the confusion out for them and and you know, they can fulfill their drive and, and live happy lives. That's a really that's really interesting because that's I mean that's it's you know, I, I imagine that uh, you know, you could probably I imagine that there are people that do it where they just see something and empty their box and their dogs are losing their minds all the time. And you don't have, they didn't, they don't have the handle on the dogs, you know, at least in the hound world and the Alaskan Husky world. Anyway, I've seen that where, you know, the dogs are tearing the dog box apart, tearing each other apart. But what you're, what you're talking about is, is really sort of detailed oriented, detail oriented training with a very clear progression from young dog to, you know, what I would call a finished dog, even though, you know, they're always learning something, but that's, um, that's really a fascinating, that, that's really fascinating to me. That kind of in-depth conscientious training is, is, um, is really, really interesting to me when, cause your guys, you know, the, the other, the other difference I think is, you know, the hounds, they'll hit the ground running for sure, but they're, they're basically not going to be able to go any faster than their noses allow them to. Whereas your guys okay. are, your guys, there's, there's an expectation that they're going to move and move explosively if, in, in some way. Is, is that correct? That with the sight yes. hounds, there's, are you then doing yep. any kind of movement training with them, getting them used to, like, how do you train a dog to not hurt itself like i know my hounds if i let them out in a in a sort of a a pasture you know they would run they would run face first into a into a fence the first six times i let them out before they learned and you know they they may injure themselves but they're not going that fast like how do you train a dog that's going balls to the wall to not just shred itself the first time it comes into contact with a fence like that's yeah so you, you basically need to set the dog up to fail um, yeah. on smaller levels. So, you know, not not dissimilar to setting it up to fail with the snake, and then it gets a it gets a small correction there. Mm. Um, you do the same uh, when they're pups and when they're running around like like peanuts. Mm-hmm. Um, look, there's there's times you can just take them out in the bush. They'll run around. They'll run around with each other as as younger dogs and run around and blow off steam. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll collect things as, as they run, but they're not, you know, they're not doing 60, 65 kilometers an hour. Or, or these dogs that we run are almost doing the same speed as a track greyhound, not not too far off it. Sure. Um and then and then as as they progress, as they're getting a little older, um, we'll run lures or flirt poles for them mm-hmm. and we'll run them up and down against fences. So, you know, we'll we'll set a lure run up uh, along the fence line. And basically, just with a bit of judgment, um, you know where to you know where to set the lure up to let the dog get close enough to it before it turns, mm-hmm. and let it get close, get, let it get some speed up, but not up not up to full speed. You want to you want it about 40 percent of of its speed, sure, sure, and run sure. it smack bang into a fence. So, so obviously you want to check the the quality of that fence, make sure there's nothing sharp and and you know, spiking that's going to actually cause damage to the dog. Right, right, right. But um, but yeah, you want it, you want it to collect the fence. Um, the other thing, another thing we do um, is uh, get them used to fences at a young age as well. Jumping the fence, pushing underneath it, 
Um, I think I, I, I have actually sent you some videos. You did, yeah. Well. You sent me a video. Um, of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just start off small and and slowly work the dog up to it because, um, you know, you don't you don't want to having a really bad experience and being and being put off doing its job, but right. you don't you don't want it being cavalier either and just, you know, throwing caution to the wind because it, yeah, it will destroy itself. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so if you can if you can have a couple of incidents where the dog does collect the fence, bounce off onto the ground, dust itself off, and think I didn't particularly like that, right. um, <laughs> but it doesn't get injured. That's the happy medium, um, right? And, and then they learn they're not they're not they're not silly animals. Um, there's only so many times you can run into something with your face before you go, okay, I won't. So, um, I guess an example of that would be I I can't remember the last time I smashed my shin against a toe ball of a vehicle. Right. But I know it hurts. Right. Know? So <laughs> I walk behind a vehicle at nighttime, I just give that toe ball a wide berth because I've because I've done it and I don't want to do it again. Right. And I right. don't suspect yeah. I will do it again. Right. That's it's, a good, it's not dissimilar for the point. dogs. So. Yeah. That's a good uh, good analogy. Yeah, I like Yeah, that. like you don't, you know, and it's you know, back back to the training side of things, like, you know some things you have to be a bit harsher on something for. So, you know, you wouldn't let your children walk out into traffic. Um, you, you're going to tell those children off, you know, when they're mm-hmm. walking near a road, if their ball goes on a road or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's a natural parenting instinct as the kid runs towards the road that you'll chastise that kid immediately. Right. Um, probably harsher than you would for almost anything else. You say, right. no, you definitely don't go on that road. You know, they might get a little, a little bit of a raised voice. The kid might cry, too bad, go inside party's over you, right. you know that's the wrong thing to do even though they weren't at any risk on a, on a suburban road but you you know the 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 catastrophic result of a child being hit by a car is too much right a hundred percent yeah it's not not dissimilar with a dog yeah, yeah absolutely it's another good analogy and in terms of the training where you kind of you know there are certain things where you do need to come down on them a little bit harder than than you know you might in certain yep. other circumstances, you know. Yeah, and not not dissimilar to kids again, but you you need to you need to allow a pup to make its mistakes and learn from them mm. because you know if you if you box them up and you know wrap them in wrap them in cotton wool, uh, they are going to get severely injured when they're older. So, Absolutely. for example, if you took a uh, a track greyhound, a retired one, and decided to hunt with it. That thing is almost definitely going to wipe itself out on, on a fence or a, you know in the scrub because it's only ever run on manicured tracks. It doesn't right. know any better. In fact, it'll probably bust its legs just running across a paddock because it right. doesn't know any better. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it's um, there's a ton to think about. But are you like let's get into your dogs a little bit. What are you running greyhounds or are you running uh, like a, a mix? What 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 are the dogs you're what are the dogs you're actually running? So the majority of dogs um, that that we're running in the group of, group of hunters that I'm in um, are fifty fifty pitbull greyhound crosses. Okay. So the reason we run those dogs is we'll 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 retire a track greyhound or someone will retire it and and one of many of the guys will retire that as a brood bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she'll be kept on a farm. She'll be hunted as well, but not not to the extent that these dogs are hunted. So. Um, the reason she's hunted, uh, is, is for the epigenetics to switch on. 
So mm-hmm. basically, basically the, the greyhound wants to chase, but it doesn't necessarily want to kill. Um, and mm-hmm. in order for you to, to have a dog that is going to chase and kill, and I mean kill effectively as well, not just worry something's leg or, sure. you know, hold on to it with the tip of its teeth and injure that animal, but I'm talking effectively kill it, um, which you would have seen on those videos as well. These, these dogs, they, they very they quickly about, kill yeah, what they catch. No, they're, uh, they're um, no. No, they're not mucking around. So, um, so you just want to set those the pups that that you're breeding or creating. You want to set them up for um, for the brightest possible future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's important that the mother is hunting, um, okay. and for her to be hunting consistently enough that it's that it's um, that you're confident that her epigenetic switch for for hunting and biting game and deep biting, not just the tip of her teeth, is switched on and that she's going to pass those genetics on um, onto her offspring. Sure. Um, and the reason we make the 50-50 cross um, is because you're guaranteed that you're taking 50% of the genetics from the father and 50% from the mother. Um, because they're both pure strains of animals, they're going to make a filial one cross and you're guaranteed right. to get a 50-50 cross. Right. Um, when you start outcrossing those or, or you know if you put two pit bull greyhounds together y- y- you could be getting 70 30 you could be getting anything you don't know what you're getting so sure um sure right and so is there an aspect of hybrid vigor there as well that you get that sort of there is yeah yeah um yeah, healthier healthier more intense or you know healthier i don't know what what to say more vigorous i guess would be you know uh, animal Yep, one hundred percent. You're gonna. You, I, I'm not a geneticist. I don't know how it works, but I just know it's tried and it's proven that mm. you're guaranteed to get a healthy dog out of out of a fifty fifty cross. You're not going to have something with a heart condition. You're not going to have something with, you know, it's hocks slipping off the back of its legs or right. bowed right. legs or anything along those lines. You just get you just overwhelmingly get going to get a healthy dog. Healthier dog, right? Um, sure. The pit dogs that we use. Uh, yeah, the pit dogs that we use are, are working dogs. Okay. Um, pig pig I don't, dogs I don't or fight dogs? Not it's not my thing. No, no. Nah, bulldogs that 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 work in the pit. So um, that's illegal, and yeah. it's not it's not my cup of tea. Um, but the genes from those dogs are what we want. So okay, right. Um, you know, people don't like pit dog fighting. People don't like greyhound racing, and people don't like hunting with dogs actually as well. Um, right. I'm a I'm a hunter. I hunt with dogs. I want the best genetics, um, and so I'm going to mm-hmm. go to those two places, and I'm going to get I'm gonna get the um, the greyhound from the track and retire her and look after her, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to get the semen from the pit dogs, and um, and the offspring of those are just phenomenally good. Okay, how how many are you able to? How many are you able to run? I, I did some rehab rehabilitation of some of these pit dogs from the Southern States. When I worked up, up in Maine, they would be shipped up to us and we would do some rehab stuff with them to see and to see if they it made sense to sort of make the transition to pet homes from them once they were, once they were rescued or, or, or you know, a, a fighting kennel was, put, was um, shut down. And overwhelmingly yep. they were with, with a few exceptions and like a few enough that I remember the dogs that didn't make it through the program. They, they were just wonderful dogs. They were just 
really, really nice dogs. But occasionally you, the, you would have that one where they were good with kids, good with people, good with cats, good with mm-hmm. livestock, but another male dog and they would lose it, which makes sense based on their, yes. you know, how many are you running at the same yeah, time? So Is that kind of an issue for you guys? We, we almost never run a straight pit dog. Um, some of the guys, some of the guys will will run them on pigs, yep. um, but there's a couple of issues with pit dogs. So if you if you have one um, that's worked the pit, then yes, it's going to be a dog aggressive dog. Yeah, it's had those genes turned on. So te- technically or genetically, there's no difference um, between a between a uh, staffy and a pit bull. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't pull its DNA and say one is a staffy. Staffordshire, right. English Staffordshire Terrier or something like that, and Absolutely. one is an American Pitbull Terrier. Right. Yeah, the difference is epigenetic. Hmm. So once it's had that switch switched on, that that's it. That dog is now a dog aggressive dog. You can have them around. You can have them around other dogs. You can have them around a husky. You can have them around a terrier. Hmm. You have a terrier swing off its face, and it's not going to want to fight it. Right. Um, but it's going to want to fight another another bulldog. That's right. just okay. that's that's the problem you've got. The other issue you have with them. Um, is they are such high drive dogs and their pain tolerance and, and endurance is through the roof mm. um, that they're just going to put themselves in harm's way. So yeah. uh, if, they're, if they're pig hunting and a pig pulls its guts out, it's, it's just going to keep going. It right. just They don't have that self-preservation mechanism um, that the other dogs have. Right. And also you miss all of the important steps in its life from, from when, it's a, when it's a wee little pup all, all the way up to when it's a functioning adult um, for it to experience all these things. Cause generally speaking, uh, they're kept on chains. Yep. Um, and that makes sense. They're kept on chains to stay away from each other, just like the Kelpies on the farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not having these yard fights and, and dogs dying and things like that. So mm-hmm. repurposing um, a retired pit dog is, is borderline impossible if you want it to function properly. You know, right. it's not fair to the dog. Um, and it's not fair to the person that's ho- that's handling that dog either. Right. So. You're you're setting everybody up for yeah. failure. That makes sense. That makes sense. But the the half yeah. and halves, the the crosses. Do you have any issues with, um, like how many how many dogs will you drop on a single like on, on a single animal um, when you when you when you open the box? Are there five or six of them one. chasing the same? Really, just the single? Uh, one one or two. Okay. That's- yeah, one or, one or two. Yeah, so um, it, it, several reasons for that. So you put too many dogs in, um, and and basically they can't. Let's say they catch a fox, and there's three or four dogs on it. Mm. They can't effectively kill that fox. It is they're going to take long. Four dogs are going to take longer to kill a fox than one dog. Okay, is that because of the the head shake or? Yeah, exactly. So what we're what we're chasing ideally um, in a in a perfect world situation um, is a dog will catch a fox. It'll normally catch it on the back leg and mm-hmm. and tip it. And they're doing you know fifty k's an hour or something like that, or they're coursing left and right. The fox skids across the ground, and the dog transitions you know within milliseconds uh, to the back of it of the fox's neck, bites down hard. Normally that's enough to kill the fox anyway. And then it does that head shake that you've seen. Yeah. And um, and it's no different, you know, like 
the stockman cracking a whip. The, the idea is to get it going one way and then pull it back fast the other way and the whip cracks. It breaks the sound barrier. It's going that fast. Right. Um, and that's what they're doing with the fox's head. They get it to go one way and then they snap it back the other way and it does what's called a cervical dislocation. So it basically breaks the neck um, mm -hmm. where the C1 vertebrae at the top meets the base of the sure. skull. Yep, absolutely. And bam, that, and that fox is dead. Yeah. Um, but if there's, if there's multiple dogs on that fox right. and they've all got their teeth on it, they, they can't shake it as, as effectively. Right. So that fox, right. That fox is going to die of other things. Yeah. Cause I was, there was one yeah, thing not, not knowing anything about it. It was fascinating to me watching some of these videos that you've sent me where, you know, you, you sent me a couple where, where I got, you got a really good view of the catch and the dispatching of those, those dogs. And I mean, you know, it, in my head, you think, I, I think, I think a lot of people, when they think of that kind of thing, sort of think of, oh, you know, maybe they think it's, it's, it takes some time for the animal to die. I was shocked. I was shocked. Even going into it with a, with a vague idea of what I was about to see, I was still shocked at how fast that fox died. It yeah. was, I mean, it was amazing so, to me. So if you, you, we don't do this with all of the dogs. Um, but I, I certainly do. Um, I start all of my dogs on dead foxes. Mm -hmm. So they won't, they won't see a live fox, and there's multiple reasons for that. Um, actually, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, we've got time. So um, firstly, if you start a dog on a live fox and the dog bites the fox, and the fox bites the dog back because um, it's got it in a position where, where the fox is able to bite it, mm -hmm. um, and that dog is just not cut out for hunting a fox, yeah. and it spits it out, you, you now have a severely injured fox um, running around in the bush that's, you know, its wounds are going to get infected um, and it's going to die a horrible death over the coming weeks. Sure. Um, so, you know, if, if my dogs put their teeth on an animal, any, any animal that we hunt, um, I want the animal killed as effectively and quickly as possible mm -hmm. um, and humanely as possible. Um, so... I genuinely don't think that fox or cat or whatever the dog catches feels the pain. Um, and I, I did talk about that in the last, in the last podcast, um, just with my own anecdotal evidence of that. So, you know, going back to smashing my, smashing my shin on a, um, a toe ball, mm -hmm. I, I've done that. It hurts. Um, but I've had my leg broken, um, in a fight and I, I walked around for two hours before I, before I bothered to go and get it fixed. Right. Um, I've been stabbed on a couple of different occasions. Um, uh, one time I got stabbed. I didn't know I'd been stabbed. I went to the uh, I went to the ER for for a suspected broken jaw from a, another incident, and they told wow. me there's a knife blade stuck in my jaw. So I wasn't I wasn't oh aware my of gosh. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the other the other two I was I saw them happen, um, but I wouldn't say I felt them happen. Um, are, are you half you know, but dog if I, yourself? Are you are you part are you part <laughs> <the> dog yourself? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I just I just had a. a uh, I grew up in a lower socioeconomic area. I've had a, a violent upbringing, and sure, um, sure, sure. and then I then I joined a, uh, a a police department that was exceptionally violent, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, had a lot of lot of interactions there, which which resulted in um, physical injury. Um, sure. But when your adrenaline's up and whatever other chemicals dump through your body um, when, when something violent kicks off. 
uh, it's not until afterwards that you're nursing your wounds that you start to feel the pain come through. So uh, 100%, um, yeah. the same chemicals, the same chemicals go through the animals when they have their, their fight or flight. Oh bugger. There's a dog coming um, issue. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think they feel them uh, like, like they would feel something, you know, if they, if they, I don't know, got caught up in a barbed wire fence or something that that would be painful to them. Um yeah. A dog catching, I don't think it is. And as you've seen on the videos, they, they're killed so efficiently. Um, it's amazing, yeah. I just, I don't think they are. I don't think they're feeling it. Um, yeah, so back to training, back to training a, a dog to kill a fox. So um, first I want to see that that dog uh, has the intestinal fortitude to go forward first. Um, and, and I'm sort of judging that dog uh, based on its behaviour as it's growing and it's going through its milestones. So it might be... You know, somewhere between seven, nine, or even twelve months old, depending on the individual dog, mm -hmm. um, is when I'll introduce it to a dead fox. But I'll do this, but I'll trick the dog basically. Um, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll set it up in the cage. It knows it, it's had its spotlight association. It knows it's going to run out and either, you know, hit a flirt pole or hit a rag or chase a bunny rabbit or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, but this time it's going to come across a fox. So. The way I do this is I get I shoot a fox or I've, or I've, you know another dog will kill a fox and I'll, I'll have it in my freezer until I'm ready to train this this pup. Mm -hmm. Then I'll get a, a length of stick like a broomstick size size stick um, mm -hmm. that's the length of the fox's spine from its from its neck down to its tail to to the start of its tail. Sure. And I'll tie that to the fox's body, and then and then off that I'll tie at each end of the stick I'll tie a, a, a rope that goes up into a triangle and then up to a single rope. And up to the the bow, uh, the branch of a tree, um, and then I'll lower that rope or that fox down until its feet are almost on the ground, mm -hmm. and uh, and pin it there basically. So okay. the next step from that, um, uh, actually, I, was, I do still have a video of that from when I when I trained this dog that I've got at home. So I'll, I'll flip that through to you. That would be great. Um, yeah. So basically, what I do is I'll yeah I'll, I'll I'll spin that I'll spin that rope around um, you know a couple of dozen times. Um, and then just basically give it, give it a push, um, like you're pushing your kid on a swing. Yeah. And then I'll pull a cord and, and release that dog. So I won't be part, I won't be anywhere near the Fox when this happens. I'll just yep. have the spotlight on the Fox. The dog comes out of the box. It runs down the beam of the spotlight. And it sees this Fox. Now a Fox is a scary, a scary thing for, for a pup to encounter. Um, they've got teeth and, and, um, and, and basically what should be happening is that fox should be running for its life, right? Right. And so then that, that dog has there's – different, there's different states of drive that dogs have. So they have a prey drive, they have a defense drive, and then they have aggression drive, so, right. and, uh, amongst others. So if it's in a prey drive and a rabbit's running or a fox is running, and, and I know it myself, like I've, I've, chased, I've chased criminals countless times – and um and you feel super safe doing it, hmm. chasing down an alleyway and they stop and turn, your guts drop and you think, okay, this is this is a problem now. This person means business. Right, right, right. So basically, I'm trying to set the dog up for the same thing. So I don't want it to be in a prey drive. I want it to purely be in, in an aggression drive. Okay. And I want that fox to look and act as aggressive as possible to that dog. Okay. Um. And this 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 fox isn't of sound mind. He's obviously it's dead, but um, but it's doing some weird stuff. It's uh, it's spinning in circles. 
It's not running away from the dog. Right. It's just doing odd things. Um, so the, the dogs, almost every one of them will run up to that fox and they generally won't just run in and, and put their teeth on it. They, they're trying to work out. It's the first time they've ever seen one. Mm-hmm. They're trying to work out what to do with this thing and why it's being, being so weird. Right. And then they'll grab it and they'll shake it and, and, uh, and the fox will do weird things. Its head will loll around and things like that. And mm-hmm. um, if you get it right, if you have, if you have the stick in, in the right place, um, its head should even whip around and contact the dog, but it's not going to do it any damage. Sure. Um, and, then, and then the dog slowly builds up this confidence that it's okay to smash these foxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do that several times at different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, again, dogs are location sensitive. So if you do it at the one location all the time, they're going to learn that foxes at that location are okay. They're not going to know anything about a fox somewhere else. Yep. Um, you change locations time and time again. Eventually they go, yep, I can smash these things that are hanging off trees. That's great. And you've, you've known um, that this dog is able to push through that fear mm-hmm. and it's got enough aggression drive to smash a dead fox. Right. Um, and as it matures, yeah. at some point, it's going to have to meet a live fox. Um, and, and we'll do that, but we'll have, we'll have two dogs present for that. Um, okay. So we'll step them, up, step them up to a live fox if by some chance that dog does release that fox. Um, the, the other dog will, will uh, mow it down, so sure. it's not going to get away. Sure, sure. Um, so, so sorry, I missed a step. Back to the back to the dead fox. Mm-hmm. If that if that dog's just working the back leg or the gut or something like that, um, you just remove it from the fox. Say no, put it in a cage and yep. and ruin its night. Um, the other thing to do is to you know sort of click and indicate up towards the head and the neck when it bites the head and the neck. Um, it's like, you know, treat it like it's its birthday. Good dog, puppy, puppy, puppy. Get all excited. Give it yep. pats. Yes, yep. you've done yep. the right thing. Get it to smash the fox. Then, then you might play tug of war with the fox or something like that. Cut mm-hmm. the rope, you know, roll around the countryside. Good, good, good. The dog gets super excited. Eventually, it'll learn. You grab it on the back leg or you grab it on the gut. You're going to get removed. You're going to get put in a cage and your night's over and we go home or your night's over anyway. Right. Um, but if it grabs it on the back of the neck, all the good stuff happens. It gets to stay out. It gets to hunt. It gets to smash the fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that way it learns that that's a good place to be. So I guess going, going one step further um, and talking about, you know, the way that a lot of people will train their dogs to hunt is they seem to think that if you have an older experienced dog and you run a young dog with it, that young dog is going to learn from the old dog. Mm-hmm. Um, my opinion on that and my strong opinion is it's just not true. In fact, what you're going to do is teach that young dog bad habits. So, right. you know, uh, say you're hunting a pig and you've got two older dogs that are, that are experienced that have had, that have, you know, had their injuries from pigs mm-hmm. um, and they go up and, and they catch themselves a boar. They're going to grab it on the muscle behind its ear because mm-hmm. that's a secure place to grab it. Um and, and that's where they're both going to be holding it. So, you know, you run your puppies as well, two young dogs with it, what's left? So yeah, they exactly. might grab it on the back leg. Yep. And they grab it on the back leg. They get a good experience and you're reinforcing um, that it's a great idea to grab this pig on a back leg. Right. And then when it comes time for that dog to be up the front of the pack or, or hunting by itself, um, you've locked into its mind that grabbing the back leg of a wild boar is a good idea. 
Right. And then that thing turns on a dime and pulls the guts out of your dog and rips its throat. And, right. uh, and, and, you know, you've got, a, you've got a severely injured dog or a dead dog on your hands. And um, although you thought you did the right thing by, by training it with these older, wiser dogs, you really didn't. So, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a two-edged sword that, you know, it, it's a lot of work to train a dog without an adult dog. You know, you can, you can get, you get a lot for free by training it together with another dog. But as you say, that dog is that, that pup is then going to pick up not just that older dog's bad habits, but probably some new ones like you're pointing out with this. Um, yep. Which makes it, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, I was just talking to Jared Moss about this last night. Um, he's a dog trainer from the States and, and you do gain a lot. You earn, you earn a lot by running a dog with an adult dog. And just in terms of sort of basic forest sense and that kind of thing. But you, uh, you know, that, that dog is probably not, you're running the risk of setting that dog up to never be any better than the adult it's running with. And in some cases be worse because it's learned to take a back seat. Yep. Um, yeah, I would I would argue it'll never be as good as that dog um, yeah, because I, it's, I it's so. learning the wrong way. It's learning to follow that dog. It's not learning to use its its senses and its brain itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so quite a few of the guys um, that I hunt with here um, and myself included, you know, we we probably won't run any of our dogs with another dog until that dog's probably two years old, if not three. Um, okay. Now, realistically, we'll say we'll say two years, two years old, um, because we want that dog on its own merits to be fully functioning, and not learning bad habits off other dogs, and 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 not you know learning to be lazy and not learning to to um, to you know rest rest while the other dogs are working, and then something gets turned into their mouth. We want them all functioning at a higher level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this this is. We're hunting enthusiasts, you know. We're not doing this for money. This is this is something that we're doing because we really enjoy it. Right. And there's there's a little little bit of art in what we do as well, I guess. Hundred um, percent. And there's yeah. effort in what we do, and then we see we see the results of that effort, and that's what we're doing it for, you know. So, absolutely. Um, it's that's why we put the effort in, and and you know that's why we that's why we do what we do. It's it's really enjoyable. Absolutely, and and uh, it's a great it's a great way to look at it. The that it's art, you know. You can. You know, the difference between a real artist working with paints and a six-year-old working with paints, you know, you could ar- you could make the argument that what they're doing is the same thing, but they're not, but it's not, you know, it's painting, but it's not the same thing at all. And that, that's what I see with a lot of, in this dog thing, it, regardless of what type of working dog you're using, you're going to have the people that are doing, they're a six-year-old with a paint set. They're... They're mm-hmm. working, they're working a dog, but you cannot even really call it the same thing as somebody who has dedicated their lives to not just doing it, but being better every time they go out. It becomes an art form. And it's it's yeah, uh, I it's, mean it's, it's yeah. It really is a thing of beauty that that somebody what what we create. There was uh, I was listening to um, a podcast recently with a with a chef where he was talking about making food as a temporary work of art. And I feel like the dogs are really the same thing. 
is that, you know, yep. we've only got them for a short amount of time, realistically, you know, and yep. what we are creating is a work of art that is, that has a timestamp on it. It's got a best buy date. It's got an expiration date. And it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating thing where you constantly have the opportunity to reinvent, reinvent yourself, get a little bit better, make a little bit of a different change. Your master, your masterpiece now might not be your masterpiece in 12 years. You may have something totally, you know, equally worthwhile, but a totally different thing. And it's, uh, that's what I find so interesting about dog training and, and hunt, you know, especially these hunting dogs is that you've got, you have works of art with different character throughout your, throughout your career as a dog trainer. And it, that, that's, it's a, it's a great way to look at it. Hmm. Yeah. It's, you're talking my language, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, I, <laughs> I, you know, I clearly I'm into hunting with dogs. It's, it's, you know, I live and breathe it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I really get a kick out of, um, you know, other than training a dog and, and getting it to a, to a really highly functioning level, mm-hmm. um, is introducing new people to hunting. So, um, and then helping them to train their dogs. So sure. there's, you know, must be a couple of dozen people by now in my life that, um, that, uh, that I've introduced to hunting that have, have really taken it on board. And, you know, it's, it's a primal thing to do. Um, I know women hunt, but it's, it's, it's really a, a, a male dominated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a, one of my best mates, his girlfriend hunts with dogs and, and she's a dog trainer. She trains um, protection dogs as well. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not it's not necessarily a, a purely male thing, but it is a very masculine thing to go out and do. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's there's something there's something to be said for helping somebody else um, get to a functioning or a highly functioning level, and introducing them to what we do. So, I mean, we're not just killing pests as well. We'll we'll go out, we'll catch pigs, we'll catch goats and and other animals that mm-hmm. you know rabbits and things that we'll take back and eat. So sure, sure, um, sure. There's a real sense of accomplishment. Uh, when you when you train a dog to humanely catch an animal and dispatch it for you or hold it for you and you dispatch it depending on the animal sure um and then you do your field dressing and then you bring that animal home or or you know back to someone else's home mm-hmm. and then uh, break it down and butcher it and you know you have you have a spit on a weekend or something like that or you know you make some rissoles or some burger patties or or whatever right. out of the meat and um, and yes, it, it is a. I don't know how to explain that feeling. It's it's such a higher level of accomplishment than than going to work to earn the money to go down to the butcher and buy some meat. A hundred percent. It's a hundred percent. Until you've done it yourself, you, until you've raised that dog yourself and and been successfully hunting with it time and time again and and butchering that meat yourself. Sure. It, I, I honestly don't know how to explain it's, how it feels. You know, it's. I totally, totally agree. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. It is hard to explain to somebody who hasn't done it themselves, but there is something, there is something deeply, deeply satisfying about having been involved in the process of making this meal from the absolute first stages. 
you know, and however, however you want far back, you want to trace it, you know, if you want to trace it back to the, when that dog was born to now, or if you want to just trace it back to that evening when we let that dog loose, you know, it's, it's a, it, it gives a meaning to the meals that is extremely meaningful to me for sure. You know, it's, it's the, I, I still, every time I sit down to and prepare a meal with something with game that I've taken myself, it's, it's, it, it takes on a whole new, there's an added aspect to it that I've never experienced in any other meals that I've eaten where there's an experience and a story and uh, behind getting to this point. And it adds so much to the meal in a way that I, like you said, I, I don't think that somebody who hasn't done it themselves can, can really fully appreciate. Hmm. Let, let, let me ask you a question there. If, um, if you invited somebody into your home and cooked a meal for them, out of some game that you you caught yep. or shot even, um, and they eat half the plate and then scrape the rest into the bin. How does that feel to you? Uh, <laughs> that, put it, put it this way, uh, that's only going to happen one time. That person's not going to get another chance where, you know, the next time they come, I may, I may be serving, you know, store-bought hamburger patties. Yeah. Because that, so I would, uh, you know, I would, I would, I would say that there's almost a reverence in what we do with the mm-hmm. animals after we get them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be serving up meat that I've caught or or that I've I've hunted um, to somebody that doesn't appreciate that meat. hundred percent. And I would go one step further to say that most likely um, that meat would come out of the bin and I'd feed it to the dog. Yeah. Because for some reason that meat's more special to me than, uh, than what they served up here in the camp tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a reason why, you know, I approach meals differently when it's me, when it's meat that I've harvested myself, you know, I may with a, a spaghetti sauce or something like that, I might heap somebody's plate fuller than I think they're going to be able to eat just to make sure that they don't leave hungry, you know, but when it's meat mm-hmm. that I, when it's a, when it's made with game that I've harvested myself, I may serve them smaller portions and rather have them go back for more and have the leftovers for myself rather than have them, you know, eat part of it and then scrape the rest of it into the bin. Cause that's just, it breaks that, that it breaks your heart a little bit. It's like, man, you know, I, isn't it amazing? Like we, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's weird, man. It's true though. Yeah. So, you know, here we are on opposite sides of the world. We've, we've never spoken before and, uh, and we can connect on that a hundred percent. Like hundred percent. Oh yeah. You know, pe- people look at me sometimes, you know, we, we talk about hunting, um, hunting with dogs and they, they prejudge what I do. You know, they think I'm barbaric or cruel or something like that. Right. Yet I've got more of a connection to the meat that's on my table than they do to the meat that that's on theirs or that they scraped into the bin. And Absolutely. then two hours later, got hung- got hungry and and swung past McDonald's or something, and you know, it's we're worlds apart. So worlds worlds apart, but on the same page. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's uh, it's one of the things I love about this um, about this dog, both you know, hunting, dog mushing, any really anything with dogs, is that it it 
it breaks down so many barriers, social barriers. You know, you can have, yeah. you can have a, you know, Japanese businessman who lives for going out on the weekends with his plot hounds. I know, I know that guy. And then you can yeah. have a, you know, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here I am an American in Norway with hounds. You are way over there with your dogs and it's, it's, we, we have something to talk about. And that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. Uh, not just this one with you, but in general, the podcast was because it gave me the excuse to contact and talk to the people that I wanted to con- contact and talk to. Yeah. I mean, you know, going, going back sort of 20 years, 20 years, 18 years, um, to get access to these working pit bulls um, as a police officer, I had to meet people that had fighting dogs that would invite me into their home right, and trust me to, to go and do these matings right. that, that, that I wasn't going to destroy. You know, some of these guys are in their seventies. This is their entire life. Right. And they, they invite me in with open arms and, uh, and connect on the, on the dog level. That's something. That's remarkable. Know? That is remarkable. It's, it's, yeah. you know, I've, I, I talked to a, a policeman. I, I won't, I won't say where he was, but he so, went yeah. to a, um, he went to a trial um, with one of his, one of his coon dogs and the judge or the guy who was judging that trial was a repeat offender that he'd put away himself several times. Yeah. And the, at the end of the trial, they spent an hour just talking about what the dogs had done, what, you know, the guy was asking questions about the breeding. They connected on a totally, totally different level, despite a shared, a shared fairly adversarial history. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it all, they were able to connect on, on that level, despite being on very, very different pages in terms of, you know, what they were what they were doing and what they were you know, accomplishing. Um, I just thought that was yeah. such a cool, such a cool thing. It, it really is. It really is fascinating. Yeah, that, that, yeah, it's fascinating, but it's not surprising to me. It's uh, it's, there's something about working dogs. Um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's part of who some of us are, I guess. Mm. And, uh, and, and it speaks to our core. So absolutely. Yep. It doesn't surprise me. No. Me neither. Oh, that's great. Well, we've been going for about an, a little over an hour and a half at this point, man. And um, I imagine that you are, after a long day of work, are looking forward to some dinner and just ch- chilling out a little bit before you get rolling again. Do you, when you're there for a week, are you working? I assume you're working longer days. Uh, we, yeah, we do 12, 13 hours, yeah. um, right. depending on the day. You know, hopefully none of my uh, management team's listening in, but I, I chuffed off a bit early today because I saw the time that you wanted to talk. Yeah. It's the uh, second second time in twenty years I've done it. But, well, uh, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm honored no, that you did it for uh, did it for the podcast. This is uh, this has been a really great one, man. I really appreciate you coming on, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, I'm looking forward to trying some of these calls out. And um, yeah, I'd love to have you back on once. Uh, once I've kind of gotten into it and, 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 uh, we can, yeah, talk a little bit about how the sort of pra- practical nuts and bolts of the, of some of the calls, cause they're, they're really remarkably good. Um, 
remarkably good calls. I, I would I would suggest to anybody who's listening that hunts predators to go and check out on at least you're at least on Facebook. Do you have a do you have a website? Yeah, I'm 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 only on Facebook. Okay. Um, and look, I think I think you know I originally I created these calls um, or modified them. Uh, the, the calls have been around for two thousand years. They're they're a version of a shepherd's whistle that you know Jesus was probably using back in the day. But um, yeah, I I modified them um, for myself. And then at one point, I posted that many around the world and around Australia that I was uh, I was around a thousand dollars in debt to myself for, for, for just for postage stamps. Right. <laughs> um, no, I got to to make some of this money back. And then, um, and so I set a page up, and it just it just sort of it just went from there. You know, they 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 function so people want them. Right. Right. And, and the page uh, on the page on yeah. Facebook is down under predator calls. Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Anybody who's listening or all of you who are listening, please go and check this out. Cause it's, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, at first glance, it may look like a standard predator call, but as, uh, as Luke talked about, it's, um, it's a little bit, it's, it's different enough to make the difference. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, that works. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, cheers, man. It's nice to meet you, man. Thanks, yeah, thanks like for the chat. Likewise, yeah. I actually great. forgot I was doing a podcast through half of it. So. Yeah, I, that's that's yeah, the no, really good. Just sitting down and you know shooting the breeze. But all right, dude. Awesome, man. See ya. Man, I love that sound. <laughs>